Well, Father, you are surely worthy of our worship, and um, you are worthy of our praise. Thank you for our Bibles that we hold in our hands now that teach us, direct us, and guide us. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us as we seek to be the men and women you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for times like these where we can join our voices and sing and encourage one another, where we can hear your word and we can receive it in and it just seems like you work in a special way when the body is gathered like this and we're paying attention to your word. And, and so we give ourselves to the hearing of it today. Strengthen us in the obeying of it and give us the courage that it takes to just let our light shine in an unashamed way to just simply believe your Bible for what it is and let it impact our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, committing our time now to you. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but um, don't we live in kind of a strange world? As I've been preparing our messages out of Genesis chapter 1, and we're still in Genesis chapter 1 this morning, I invite you to turn there. I have been uh, struck with just noticing some of the occurrences or thinking about things that people have done because they don't believe that Genesis chapter 1 is true. We've been talking a little bit, uh, last week we'll review this morning as well, a little bit about the contrast between creation and evolution, particularly for the sake of our boys and girls and our young people who are here today and college-age students as well, as well as all adults, I just really want to pound this drum a few more minutes and just encourage you that when you open your Bible and you read it, to not be embarrassed of it. Do you remember if you were here last week, we were taking a little ride around the world on a helicopter and we had our binoculars and our microscope. And, you know, when we read Genesis 1, when we got off our helicopter all around the world, didn't we find things to be just the way God said they would be, just the way he designed them? In a minute, I want to review with you those elephants, some of the elephants that we talked about in the evolutionist living room. But that brings me to the thought that I started with, which is, isn't it a strange world? You see, when you, when you deny the existence of God and you come at the world from a naturalist viewpoint, that is, there cannot be a supernatural, but only a natural explanation for all things, and you're a secular humanist believing, hook, line, and sinker, the the theory of evolution, you can just really end up doing some strange things. At least it sure looks that way to us who, or to we, who hold to Genesis 1 as a literal understanding of how we got here. For example, it wasn't too long ago that it was making headlines uh, that they had put out an advertisement for volunteers, and they got them easily, um, at the London Zoo in the Primate Center, to put on, in a big glass case, um, a display of humanoids. Um, now, I've entitled our message, and there's notes on the chair nearby if you want to follow along, but I've entitled our message this morning, Primates, People, and More Problems with Evolution. Basically, what we're going to try to do this morning from Genesis chapter 1, as we look particularly at verses 26, 27, and 28, I want to contrast 
the difference between animals and humans, and that there is a huge difference between animals and humans, and that that really does matter. But after I had printed, the bulletin was printed with my title in it, I decided to look up in the dictionary the word primates. Because I got to thinking, it remind, I got to thinking, you know what, I think that the secular scientist includes humans in the primate category. And sure enough, the idea is that primate comes from the word primary or first. It will be the first of life or the first or highest form of life, basically is the idea, I think. But uh, monkeys and people are primates. I mean, can you imagine going to the zoo that day? You know, you got your little kitties along. Let's go to the zoo and it's fun. And who can't stand and watch giraffes for at least a half an hour, you know? It's incredible creations of God. And the elephants and the zebras and go to the reptile house and everybody comments on how stinky it is in there. And, you know, and to watch the... I always like watching bears for some reason. I like the North American big game animals and you watch. And then, and then let's go to the primate house. And so you see the gorillas and the champ, chimpanzees and orangutans and they're fascinating, aren't they? Just unbelievable. Again... Just exactly what God said in Genesis 1. All these variations who reproduce after their own kind. It's interesting when you read it because, you know, even at the, at the zoo, in the gorilla house, they never have to run in there when the gorillas have babies to grab the chimpanzee that they got, that they got from a gorilla. It doesn't happen that way. They reproduce after their own kind. And we're going down the line and we're watching the chimpanzees and the gorillas. And then we come to this big glass case and here's a bunch of people half naked in there, hanging out and doing their, you know, they had to display it a lot of different ways. They had them in different ways. And people, and it really drew an attraction. Everybody's standing there watching all these people. Go to the mall! All right? You don't go to the zoo to watch people. I don't know about you, but I just think that is really strange. All right, so so that you know what kind of church you're coming to, the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church doesn't think that people belong in the zoo, okay? Just to clarify that. All right, if you want to watch people, they're strange to watch, no doubt. I mean, just go to the mall, go to Walmart. There's a whole sociological study waiting for you. It's there. But not at the zoo. But you know, it's uh, not surprising, is it, that if we teach our children that they evolve from lower life forms. And, and many of the leading PhD scientists of the day believe that their great, 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 grandfather swang from trees. And we teach our children this. Is it any wonder that we end up doing strange things? I was thinking about that one girl a couple years ago that made headlines. Um, her name was Julia Hill. They called her Julia Butterfly. Do you remember her? On December 10th, 1997, just about 10 years ago or so, 11 years ago, she climbed up in one of the great big sequoia redwoods that was going to be logged off in Northern California, climbed up there and lived from December 10th, 1997 until December 18th, 1999, two years almost to the day. She lived up in a tree and never came down to keep from having them bulldoze it or chop it down. Now, I'm all for the stewardship of good trees and I enjoy trees and growing things and there's another subject coming. I mean, it, it, we want to be stewards of God's earth. 
But to me, that is like um, confusing your priorities. In essence, you're giving your life for a tree. You see, the reason you do that, the reason you put people in the zoo, the reason you would give your life, and people have, I saw other headlines, wasn't too long ago it made headlines in Oregon where they, the loggers were chasing out the um, environmentalists and then they ended up cutting some trees down and the one tree fell down on the guy and killed him, on the environmentalist. And it was a big, big deal. To give your life for a tree means what? It means that that you value the earth, you value the life on the earth equal with humans. And if you believe in evolution, it's only the natural result of your line of thought. It's logical, isn't it? That a frog or a fish is just another form of the same kind of animal life of which I am. And therefore, a boy is a dog, a dog is a boy. What difference does it make? And how strange and confusing it gets. Well, particularly for the sake of the young people, and if you weren't here last week, uh, some of you, I wanted to just click off, and if you look at your notes for this part especially, I wanted to just click off what we had talked about last week about these elephants in the living room because, as I said, I just wanted to pound this drum a little bit longer here because I, I want so much for our young people to be able to sit in their biology class at whatever level and be able to just listen and not be embarrassed that you don't believe all these things that you're being taught that are impossible to have taken place. And I thought of a, just a simple acronym using the word creation. And I just wanted to remind you that these are the things that you cannot explain away. You cannot explain these away. And so keep this little acronym creation written in the back of your Bible or something. And you young people that are still in school, I'm not saying that you've got to start a fight. I'm not saying that you've got to raise your hand and argue with your teacher. But just quietly and confidently and securely in your own mind and in your own heart, do not doubt your Bible. The Bible makes sense. And you recall that we talked about these elephants in the living room last week. And, and this captures most of them. Um, creation, look at there, letter C, cause and effect. This is, this is the watchmaker. This is Dawkins' watch. Uh, you, can't have, you can't have a watch. You can't have a watch that works without a watchmaker. You can't have a, remember the stool a few weeks ago. I had a stool up here. You can't even have a simple wooden stool. Nobody in their right mind, no matter how many PhDs you had, would you be able to convince them that the stool came from nowhere? And yet a stool is incredibly simple. But they know because they can touch and feel a stool that there had to be somebody who cut down a tree, sawed the lumber, milled it, put it together, glued it, stapled it, whatever, and designed a stool. It's a cause and effect argument. The very existence of the pulpit means what? There is a pulpit maker. You wouldn't say pulpits just happen. You'd get laughed out of the room. And yet, you can say that this, the phenomenal creation in which we all enjoy and the beauty and the complexity of, of it's acceptable to say that all of it just happened. Well, it's ridiculous. Cause and effect. R stands for random chance of a good mutation. That's totally unreasonable. It's totally unfounded. Don't ever let anybody convince you at any level that there can be enough sequential good mutations to turn a fish into a bird, all right? It is just mathematically, astronomically, off the charts, unreasonable. And one of the questions that, that I think is worth asking somebody who believes in mutations and that muta mutations are good, ask them, ask them, if you could have three or four mutations happen to you right now, 
Would you take them? They'll say no. Nobody in their right mind in the medical world or the scientific world would say, hey, if I could have a bunch of mutations happen to me right now, I would have it happen. Because why? Because mutations always work against you. They don't work for you. Cause and effect, random chance of good mutation, entropy. That means that things are winding down, not winding up. Amazing complexity of simple life forms. Listen, just the phrase simple life forms is an unacceptable phrase. There is no such thing as a simple life form. Do you have that straight in your head? Do you recognize that the microbiologists in the last 15 years under their microscope have discovered that the smaller they get, the more complex it gets? And that Darwin and his theories stand on the concept that somewhere along the line there was some kind of amino acid or something that lightning struck and a simple form of life derived out of that that gradually mutated upwards. People, it's nonsense. There is no such thing as a simple life form. Okay? So don't be influenced by it. Just sit there and listen and think, man, you know, when God, because when God created and it got smaller, 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 it's unbelievable how complex it gets. T is tornado in a junkyard just because I love that phrase. It's a title of a book that I have. But basically it summarizes the fact that big explosions don't work for you. They work against you. Okay? You don't get Boeing 747s out of, of a, out of a tornado in a junkyard. Okay? It doesn't happen that way. And I don't think you're stupid if you think that's true. Okay? I think that you're doing okay if you believe that. You don't get complexity out of tornadoes in a junkyard. Irreducible complexity means simply if there's one part that's missing, the whole thing falls apart. It can't happen. And then the odds of them all coming together at the same time are astronomically, it's unsound math. It would never happen. Your eye, an egg, your liver, your kidney, it couldn't all come together at the same time and work and because it's irreducibly complex. If you pull one plug, the whole thing falls apart. Without a design and without a designer, it couldn't be brought together at the same time. Origin of life, question mark. Here's what I was thinking about this week. I've been driving down Route 9 a little bit, and for some reason this week in front of the IRS down there, if you notice, there's a bunch of dead deer along the road. They've been getting hit down there. That's a, a good spot for bow hunters or something next fall. And a lot of deer have been getting killed in there. And I've often thought, you have science class, and it's, you know, it's 9.30 in the morning, come dragging this dead deer into science class. And every once in a while, a deer gets hit, and it's in pretty good shape. It didn't bleed hardly at all, and it's all, it's all sound, you know? Take that in there, strap it to, from the rafters in your classroom, so you've got this deer hanging in your classroom. You know, this deer, take a two by four and prop his chin up, you know, get some pins and open his eyes. And think about what you have. You got hair, you got hooves, you got teeth, you got eyeballs, you got a liver, you got a tail, you got lips. I guess deer have lips, I don't know. It's all right there. Now think about what an advance you have. Think about, think about the complex mechanism that you have hanging from your classroom ceiling. This deer. And it's unbelievable to study that thing. And then say, your teacher says, what are you going to do with it? I'm going to wait for it to come back alive. No, 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 no. You don't understand. 
It's dead. No, 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 no. You don't understand. If we wait long enough, life will spark up in it. Now, let me tell you something. How do you explain the origin of life, regardless of what a complex mechanism you even start with? You can strike that deer with lightning a hundred million times if you want to, but it's not going to start breathing again. And when I read Genesis chapter 1, how acceptable and easy it is for me to read. And he breathed into it the breath of life. We have a a breath-giving God. I have no problem being laughed at if I believe that. Don't expect me to believe that life can come from non-life without God breathing into it. I have a problem with that. And then no missing links. There are no missing links. No matter how deep you dig, no matter which museum you go to, there are no transitional fossils, okay? And they do admit it. I've got quote after quote I could read you, but we won't do that. Creation. There it is. There's your acronym. And I took a few minutes. Like I said, I wanted to just pound that drum again. Boys and girls and young people here, I just want you to just do not doubt your Bible. You're not stupid if you believe the Bible. All right? And I think that there's eight arguments right there that to me make it totally logical and acceptable to not believe evolution because all eight of those things really create problems for the evolutionist. And yet, by faith, they accept that nothing plus time equals everything. I have a real problem with that. Well, back to our subject of the morning with a little review under our belt. We've got a few minutes And I want you to look at your notes, if you will, and I want us to talk about the uniqueness of human life. Because in Genesis chapter 1 now, we have something that happens a little differently. Let's let's go back and read, say, let's just start with verse 20. Let's start with verse 20. And we've been having the days of creation, and we've been teaching that these are literal 24-hour days. A couple reasons for that is, remember, the Hebrew word for day that's used here. Moses, when he wrote this, easily could have used another word that meant a time frame. Instead, he used the Hebrew word for day that just means 24 hours, means a normal day. He also framed each day, God did, with and morning and evening, and it was the first day. And morning and evening, it was the second day. How else would you take it? There's no time frames here. Furthermore, we have these repeated phrases that we looked at last week. And God said, remember, and God said, and then, and it was so. Why does God need a gabillion years to say something and for it to be so? It's out of nothing and then, kabam, there it is. That's because he's God. All right, no further explanation needed. And so here we are on day five Going into day six, and you can see this pattern of how God, and God said, let the land do this, and God said, let there be lights, and then in God said, verse 20, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing which was with, which, with which the water teems, according to their kinds. In other words, just so you know what that means, like, if you have a goldfish, and it, or guppies. Guppies have babies like crazy, right? My brother used to have tropical fish. If you have six guppies, you end up with 6,000 guppies, right? But you know, you never have your little boy or little girl come running in, Mommy, the guppies had goldfish. 
doesn't work that way. You never had a kitty cat that was going to have babies and you get the box. You know how you do that? We had one one time on the deck and, and we had it next to the door and we positioned it so we could look through the glass and had a piece of carpet and cloth and an old towel and a cardboard box. And we have the kitty cat's going to have kitties. And lo and behold, we got beagles. Ain't that something? No. Why? Because it's exactly the way God said After its kind, after its kind. And even if they're closely related, you know, grizzly bears always have grizzly cubs. Black bears have black cubs. Polars have polars. Pandas have pandas. You know how they watch this birth of these panda babies at the zoo. They never get surprised and get a grizzly out of a panda, do they? Why? After its kind, after its kind. And God said, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I love that expression. We've talked about that. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, verse 24, Let the land produce living creatures, according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that moved along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Now notice the difference in the way it's phrased. And then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea. I'm expecting an amen from over here somewhere. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. And they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So Adam started out being vegan. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I want you to see now the contrast in the way God created humans and in the way God created animals. Look across the page at chapter 2, verse 7, and what you have in chapter 2 is you have a kind of an, a deeper explanation of what happened in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That's the origin of life right there. Well, how are people unique to animals? How is it in our creation that we can see this? First of all, I want you to see that the way God created us makes us uniquely personal. We are created in a uniquely personal way compared to animals. Did you notice the difference? God And God said, let there be light, let there be darkness, let there be land, let there be sky, let there be water, let there be birds, let there be... And then he says, verse 26, and let us, 
Interesting, there's a plural, we won't talk about it right now, but an allusion uh, uh, to the Trinity. And let us, remember in chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where we'll end this morning, Lord willing, it says all things were made by Him and for Him, talking about Jesus. And then we have the, we have God, Elohim here, which is in a plural form as well. The word, and God said, every time it uses the word God in this chapter, it's Elohim. It's a word for God Almighty, the Father. The Trinity is present. And then he says, and let us make man in our image. All of a sudden, everything's going to change. And God is no longer just speaking these things into existence. He is now going to personalize the process. And he's going to say, I'm going to now use me. And when he uses the word made there, made in my image, the Hebrew word has the idea of being made in the pattern after God himself. Isn't that interesting? Now, God is spirit. He's not flesh. God the Father. The best way we can understand God the Father, of course, is God the Son, Jesus Christ, who lived among us. Because, like, questions go through your mind right away. Well, does God walk upright? You know, does... But God often in the scriptures uses personification terms, doesn't he? We talk about the hand of God. We talk about the mind of God. We talk about the eye of God, the voice of God. We're related to him in a personal way that is unlike the animals. So you can see that God created us and it makes us uniquely personal to him. But what does this mean, the image of God? If you're keeping notes here... First of all, to be created in the image of God does not mean something that a lot of people are getting confused nowadays, and that is that we are gods, little g. To be created in the image of God does not mean that we are gods. A lot of people are seeking this self-deity. A lot of people are into self-worship. You sit around cross-legged, eat some bird seed, meditate a while, and figure out the godness in yourself. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? But it's, it's wrong. We're not gods. We're just human beings created by God. So one thing it doesn't mean is the image of God in me does not mean that I am deity or I am God. Now, spiritually in my standing, Hebrews chapter 1, and two, uh, one I think says, or 2 maybe, that Jesus is my brother and I'm adopted into the family of God. Now, our spiritual standing, yes, We have a spiritual nature to us and we are related to God in that sense. We're adopted into the family of God. We are His children, but He's God and we're not. Okay? We have some of these spiritual realities that we can live out, but we don't worship ourselves. We are not to be worshipped because we're not deity. You remember when Peter was walking down the road and they healed that guy and he grabbed him by the feet and he bowed down and started to worship. Peter grabbed him, made him stand up, said, don't pray to us. We're not gods in the book of Acts. Well, what does it mean then? What does it mean? Well, from the context and from the reading of the passage, look what he says. Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. I think there's probably just a, a repeated saying. I don't know that there's much difference between the word being created in God's image and being created in the likeness of God. I think he's just emphasizing that it's a personal touch on this creation. He doesn't say it about white-tailed deer. He doesn't say it about bunny rabbits. He doesn't say it about canaries. They're not created. Man is created in my image. What does this mean? I think that it 
obviously brings us to the conclusion that man now is the pinnacle of creation. Number one, I am the pinnacle of creation. What do we mean by that? I think that we're going to see in a minute that what God has been getting to here in all of Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of humans. He's done all the rest to get to this point. And you know, isn't it interesting when I read the rest of my Bible and I pick up my Bible, what is it about? Is it about, is it about bears? Is it about lions and tigers? It's about people. It's about how people relate to God and how God relates to people and how our relationship with God was broken and, and how God is a redemptive God and He's a pursuing God. And He comes after us because after the relationship with Him was broken in the garden, the rest of the story is about how valuable people are to the degree that He sent His only Son to die on the cross for our sin. He didn't send His Son to die for polar bears. Even if the ice cap is melting, He won't send His Son to die for them. And and it's not melting, by the way, but uh, neither of us can prove it, can we? Man is the pinnacle of his creation, you see? What, what it means is that I am the pinnacle of creation. All of this is heading up to this. Secondly, I think that the obvious conclusion is that it differentiates me from an animal. And number two, to be created in the image of God means I'm not an animal. I am not an animal, all right? Now you can believe, if you want to, that your great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy swang from trees, but I don't believe it, all right? And the woman I'm married to was never a monkey in her past. All right? There's a difference between us and animals. And I think that's part of what this means. Okay, we've created all this. Now I'm going to create something unique and special and different. And it's going to be very personal. It's the pinnacle of creation. He's not an animal. Well, what does it mean? Further, I think it means, number three, that I am relational and I am rational. Let me just read what I have on my notes there. We are capable of sharing love, fellowship, words and ideas, enjoying friendships, discerning attitudes, participating in experiences with others, etc., etc. And you say, now, wait a minute, Pastor Van. Wait a minute. You don't know about my puppy dog. He understands me. And we can relate and we share experiences. And he has high IQ. I don't want to take away at all from unbelievable things that animals can learn and do and be. But I'll tell you something. They don't do any of these things the way a person can do them. God created people in his image to be able to experience relationship and have a, have a rational mind to think and exchange ideas and to learn and to use tools and to grow and to develop and improve himself in a way that an animal can't do. I've been doing a little experiment with my dog. I built him a dog house. It's a nice dog house. I insulated it. it. took me two days to build it. I thought it'd take me four hours. It took me two days. Nice. It's too, too heavy to pick up. It's all insulated. Nice dog house. And it got cold this winter, and I thought, you know, I'm going to nail down some carpet in my dog's house. It took me three times. I don't know why I was so hard-headed. But every time, and the carpet looks exactly like this. I'd cut it out, stick it in there, and nail it down with roofing nails. And about three days later, my dog would have that thing all ripped out and have that carpet all shredded up. I'd go out there and pick up all the junk and pieces, and I'd go cut me another piece. And Here, Chancy, here's your carpet. You can nail it down. You can be cozy and warm. On the inside, he's thinking, moron, I just ripped it out. Why are you putting that in there? I don't know what he's thinking. 
And by the way, while I'm thinking about it, you've got to be careful about the movies you watch because you'll begin to think that animals really can think like humans if you watch the right movies. Right? Like, what's that a long way home dog with the three dogs with the Michael J. Fox guy voice in it? I mean, it makes even me cry. And, and you can't get much more hard-hearted than I am, probably. And the dogs are thinking, and the dogs want to go home, and the dogs, it's cold. and That's not true. Okay, That's not true. There's no evidence anywhere that dogs are like that. Okay? They're not created in the image of God and they can't have relationships and they rip carpet out of their, out of their offices in a hurry and just tread it and, and you can't explain to them any other way. I had some people when they left the early service, they said to me, the reason they're doing that is because that carpet's full of toxins and the dog can smell it. Well, it's full of toxins, all right, because it's been in the doghouse long enough to have toxins. I don't know what else it's full of, but the dog doesn't like it. Because why? Because... He didn't understand that I was just wanting him to be comfortable and I was trying to take care of him and I was trying to relate to him. Okay? And when I do things like put carpet down for my wife, she doesn't rip it up. She appreciates it. And she enjoys it. You also want to see, number four, that I am a reflection of God Himself. I am reflective of God. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means that I'm a reflection of Him. The way God is, people can reflect that. Okay? It has an intellectual capacity. It has a spiritual capacity. It it has a moral capacity to it. And, And again, to the notes here, if you're looking, I want you to note that man does not, man in general, humankind, does not possess the qualities of God that express his infinite or non-moral attributes. All right, There are attributes or descriptive terms about God that, that are infinite in nature. What do we mean by that? Well, his, he's an infinite God is one description of him. That means there's no beginning and no end. Humans do not have no beginning and no end. We have a beginning and we have an end. All right? Some of these would be like his, uh, his immutability or his self-existence. Immutability means he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Omnipresent, it means he's everywhere present. Omnipotent, he's all-powerful. Omniscient, he's all-knowing. He's sovereign. He rules over everything. Nothing is ever out of his control. He's sovereign. Those non-moral attributes of God do not transmit to people. That is not a way that I am like God. But there are many attributes that make me different from an animal, that make me like God, in that He caused me to be a reflection of these things, and He actually wants me to develop in these areas. For example, we call these communicable. Communicable attributes, or moral attributes. That is, holiness, wisdom, goodness, truth, love, grace, and mercy, and there's more. But that's an example. I'm... I'm called to live a holy life in Christ Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 1, right? What does that mean? It means that I've been transformed through the power of Christ in my life, and I now live a holy life. That is, I do not allow my, the members of my body to yield over to sin. I can make a choice, and I can walk in holiness. That holiness is the kind of holiness that God demonstrates in His attributes. I, I don't have the same level of holiness that God has, Because he's infinitely perfect in his holiness, but he wants my holiness to reflect his holiness. He wants me to to walk in wisdom. 
He wants me to be a person of grace and mercy and to enter into the truth and to live at the level of the truth. And truth can be known. How? Because God is truth and He's given us that reflection. And that's how I'm created. In the Listen, my dog Chance up there only cares about one thing right now, and I know what it is because I didn't feed him this morning. Because my life was irreducibly complex this morning and I couldn't lose any more parts to it or I wouldn't be here. And one part I couldn't add was going out and feeding the dog. And I'll do it as soon as I get home. Don't feel sorry for him. He deserves it for chewing on my nice doghouse that I built him. But he's not worried about truth. My dog is not worried about truth. He doesn't care about truth. My dog is not worried about having mercy or having grace. Being kind. He can be taught to be kind, but it's not something he thinks about or worries about. That makes animals and people way different people. Way different. It's the image of God that has been stamped upon me. I am unique, and I am unique in a very personal way. Let's click off the rest here. Notice that I am uniquely positioned in my creation, verse 26 and 28. And then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Okay, that's very personal. And then he says, and let them rule over. He gave us a position. He says, rule over in verse 26, and look what he says in verse 28. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Control it. He put man in a position that is over the animals. You don't put people in a display case at the zoo because we're not equal with animals. We have zoos because we're people and we want to appreciate and enjoy God's creation. And I'm all for having comfortable zoos for the animals. All right? Good cold water for the polar bears to swim in and things. But it's not wrong to get those animals and to look at them with your boys and your girls and eat popcorn and say, wow, isn't God awesome? I've been put in a position over them and I can subdue them. It's okay to take a couple horses and hook them up to a plow and plow all day with them and let them do my work. I've been put in a position over them and I'm allowed to use them for my ends. That's what it means to subdue it, to rule over it. I can train my bird dog to go pick up the ducks that I shot so I don't have to swim in the cold water. And it was okay to shoot the ducks and put them in the pot on the stove and eat them as part of ruling over the earth. And it's okay to have my, my lab jump in that ice-cold water and swim. He loves it. That's what he was made for. And he has great delight in obeying his master because I've been put in a position to rule over him. I'm not him. I'm different. Young people, boys and girls, listen to me. Do not let anybody ever tell you that you're an animal. That's a terrible thing to teach a boy or a girl. It's awful. He then blesses us in a, in a unique way. I know he, you notice in other passages that he blessed the, the animals, but he says here um, in verse 28a, God blessed them and said to them, he gave instruction with his blessing to be fruitful and to multiply. Uh, I put down that if there's a unique praise to people. We're given a, a, a job, we're given tasks, and he praises us. 
He blesses them. D, uniquely privileged. Look at 28B. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, he said. We have the privilege of filling up the earth, of using it. That raises the whole question, how green should Christians live? Pretty green, all right? But we don't worship the earth, and the earth doesn't rule over us. We rule over the earth. That's why it's okay to drill a hole in the ground at Anwar and suck out the oil. All right? It's not wrong to do that. It totally makes sense to do that. It does not make sense to let the oil run along the beach and kill the animals. That's terrible. It only makes sense. And you start going down some of those roads, you're going to do and end up in some of the most strange logic you've ever seen. And we're going to waste our resources, as we're seeing, all kinds of things. We don't waste. We don't ruin things. And we should teach our children. We don't destroy birds' nests. And, and we don't destroy property. And we don't light the field on fire like I did when I was a kid. You don't do that. We live wisely. We live responsibly. And maybe we'll have another message on that eventually. I don't know. But we're uniquely privileged to spread out and to use the whole earth. And God gave us the ability to, to live in all these different regions, the mountains and the desert and the snow country and the, the Everglades swamp country. Fill it up. Use it. Have you ever noticed you can't really wear it out? You can be irresponsible and do stupid things. But the earth is very resilient. And when used wisely with the wisdom that God gave us to use, Christians should be the best there is. Our woods right here should last for all the generations ahead if we manage well and plant trees to replace the dead trees and manage it well. It should be a beautiful piece of ground. I'm not going to strip cut it. and all that. That's just nonsense. We know not to do that. But we're uniquely privileged. So the question then is this. How come, okay, Pastor Van, how come then monkeys look so much like humans? How come? I mean, their hands are just like our hands. No, they're not. It's because simply we live in the same environment. You can build an argument that my dog and I have a lot in common. He's got a spine. I've got a spine. He's got shoulder blades. I've got shoulder blades. He's got upper teeth. I've got upper teeth. He's got lower teeth. I've got lower teeth. He's got a brain. I've got a brain. He's got two eyes. I've got two eyes. I mean, my dog are a lot alike. Well, we're a lot different, too. Well, you and a chimpanzee are a lot alike, but you're really a lot different, too. And the two aren't going to be confused ever. Don't worry. This is a whole lot different. Listen, if we lived in the water, if God had designed humans to live under the surface of the sea, I'll bet you we wouldn't look the way we look right now. I'll bet we'd look a lot like fish. Bet you never thought that before, did you? It's environmental. That's not a hard question. Don't be Just because God made a vast array of creatures. Well, a closing note, if man is evolving, if man is an evolving animal, then what? then people are animals. If man is an evolving creature, people are animals. That's an end logic, isn't it? Survival of the fittest is a good thing because it's all part of the natural evolutionary process. So survival of the fittest. Listen, Adolf Hitler and Karl Marx totally believed that. They did not believe exterminating certain people groups was wrong at all. They totally were followers of Charles Darwin. This is highly documented in their writings. 
and they totally believed that they were simply fulfilling part of the natural selection process of evolution. Our time is up. I have a couple quotes here. If, if man is an evolving animal, then weak people are a waste. Then we ought to dispose of weak people because it just brings down the human development as we go. Who knows where we're going to end up if we especially would wipe out the weak people. The sexual revolution is only natural. Why is immorality and sexuality approved of by an evolutionist? It has to be because it's simply a natural drive. Why would you suppress a natural drive? Ultimately, in its extreme case. Racism is, is rational. And by the way, Charles Darwin was an extreme racist. He believed that black people particularly were incredibly inferior to white people. He believed that certain Asian groups would die off because they were a weaker species. Another thing he was was incredibly sexist. He believed that women were completely inferior to men. He thought that their brains were smaller because their hands were smaller. He thought they couldn't think as well, they couldn't work as well, their body wouldn't hold up as well. How foolish. How foolish. Not to open your Bible and see, and male and female, God created them. And didn't God know what he was doing when he created mommies? Ours has been gone, Johnny and me. We've been batching it for two and a half days here. Janet's on a trip with some girlfriends to Williamsburg, an annual thing she does. Our place is lousy without her. And it ain't getting better and better. And at least the two men at our house are not superior to the women, I'll tell you that. We need her desperately. Racism, sexism, sexual immorality... Abortion is justifiable. Why? Because we're just animals in process, people. That's where the evolutionary theory will get you. Don't kid yourself. Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to let love be our guide. Well, where did love come from? Listen, the, the more I study and read and the more I just think through these first couple pages, and we'll get off it here pretty soon, it is mind-boggling how serious... And how wrong it is to teach our children that they evolved from animals. And the way our culture has accepted this hook, line, and sinker, and the way the leading thinkers of our day have bought into the lies, it's remarkable, it's stunning, it's wrong. It reminds me in Romans 1 where it says, And believing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And in Psalm 14.1 it says, It is the fool who has said in his heart, There is no God. Is it any wonder? Colossians 1.16 says, All things were made by him and for him. You say, Okay, Pastor Van, if it's true, why did God create me? Nothing ever goes right in my life. Nothing's ever good. Why am I here? I'm just a mistake. You are no mistake. You are created in the image of God. And Colossians 1.16 says, You are created by Him and for Him. I can sit down with you with my yellow tablet and you and I can make a list together if you, if you think you're not worth anything. And I can show you that every problem in your life is a direct derivative of sin and disobedience to this book somewhere along the line. That's what it is. I'll challenge you to break the chain today and say... 
I was created by Him and I'm created for Him and from now on I'm going to live for Him. It'll change your life and it'll change your world. It makes sense. God's Word works and I can see it on the very first page, can't I? Everything's exactly the way He said it would be. Let's bow in prayer. Well, Father... Thank you for the challenge of the day and thank you for the clarity with which you've described how you created us. Father, I would thank you for creating us in your image and how humbling that is. Please give us a growing understanding of what it means to reflect who you are to the world around us. The great privilege of being a human and how life is sacred because you breathed into our nostrils the breath of your life. Father, help our boys and girls and our young people in our high schools and our colleges not to buy into the lie of evolution. Help us to realize how serious it is and how it destroys the foundational thinking of our lives and and it destroys the very foundation of who we are before you and in Christ. Help us to realize how it's based on such fallacy as well and Help us to just walk in humility before you to be growing in grace. Teach us, grow us, challenge us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.